Everybody's free. Everybody's free. Everybody's free. Everybody's free. Everybody's free. Podcast. First and foremost, welcome Vanessa and welcome to all the sisters who are walking with us live and direct around the world. My name is Morgan Dixon. I hear Vanessa on the other line. <laughs> I'm sorry. Somebody is like scraping the sidewalk. I don't know. I'm trying to walk back. Oh, he's cleaning up. He was super. Hey, Morgan. Uh, hi. That was from the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. That was good. Everybody's free. Yeah. It's so good. And, you know, today we're going to talk about the Penn Center, the Penn School. And it was the first school for freed African children in America who had been enslaved. And I immediately thought of the Boys Choir of Harlem School. And then I was like, I wanted to play something from them, but then I got too sad about (laughs) the whole thing around the Boys (laughs) Choir of Harlem School. So then I thought about that song from Romeo and Juliet, which just, it was when she was walking down the aisle and he was singing Everybody's Free. And I was like, that little boy, I have to find his name. He's a grown man now. Let me see if I can find his name because that ain't right. Hold on. Quentin Tarver. Quentin Uh, Tarver is his name. So shout out to you, Quentin Tarver, who's a grown man now and lent your beautiful voice to that musical soundtrack. So hi, everybody. Hi, Vanessa Garrison. Your whole government name. I know, right? <laughs> uh, I, um, on the way home, I stopped in my old neighborhood so I could take this call and go for a walk where there's tree cover because it's so hot here today. I wanted to take some cover so I didn't get burned by the sun. How's the weather there in D.C.? It is a perfect fall crisp day. It's like chilly where you need a fleece, but like the sun is still out so that when you put the fleece on, and then the sun hits your face, it just feels cozy and good. I love fall. I love this. I love this weather. The trees are, the uh, leaves are falling. That's why that guy was sweeping. He was sweeping up the leaves. And like they're crispy underneath my feet. And it just is like, 
outside of my apartment is a big park and the trees are green, like, you know, 70% of the year, but now they start to turn and it's like my favorite thing to watch, like them turn gold, turn yellow, and then they're going to go totally bare in the winter. And then they come back so strong. And just to watch that cycle of life, it's just like such a good reminder of just like, sometimes the trees be bare and it just look like you can't even imagine that it's going to be like beautiful and green like it is now, but it is. And then sometimes like the leaves are changing colors and things are falling off and they're aging and all, but it's still going to come back around. So I feel really inspired. Yeah, seasons of life, seasons of life. Seasons what of season life, of life yes. like, do, you feel, do you feel like you're in right now? Are you in the season of life where everything is like bright green and new leaves? Are you just hardy and green and leafy? Are you starting to turn a little brown? Just in this particular cycle, not in your whole life, but this particular cycle Ooh. of the year, how are you feeling? <laughs> no, I feel like I have been in a desert barren, a desert barren tree with no leaves where everybody was just like that tree got to go out to pasture. It ain't coming back. But <laughs> now it's like budding. I feel like on each little ranch, Ooh, that's yes. what I meant. like just a little bud. You can't even tell like what flower they're going to be yet. You can't tell like how big the tree is going to get, but you know something's coming up. That's the season I'm in. Oh, I love that. I love that, V. Yeah. I love that. What season are you in? Like? You I, I, you're you're in full-on bloom hydrangea season. <laughs> oh, you in, you in the bloom, okay? You in like, pick me up and go ahead and put some, put some of me in the vase and then more flowers is going to just bloom right after. That's where you at. That's where I'm just calling it oh, I thank you. You are in friend. the bloom season. Thank you, friend. But you know what I actually feel like? I feel like, you know how the sun comes out a little bit too early one season and then everything blooms, but then it just dies real quick? I had a little bit of that the last couple of weeks where I just been like yeah. on the ground and then I'm I feel like a new season is right there like the warmth is coming I can feel it but I might have bloomed prematurely that's what I'm saying <laughs> <Might have bloomed laughs> prematurely. and I feel like a new season of my life is coming where I can just continue to like shed skin of like yeah. shame or like um you know, I feel like I have like skin of like expectation of other people and like it creates like this kind of angst or like anxiety or rage. I just really want to like not have that and just show up every day with a brand new smile on my face, a brand new song in my heart, brand new grace for myself and other people. And just maybe yeah. be a, a more easy, go a little more easy. Um, yeah. So that's where I am. Yeah. Well, I'm glad mm. we're talking about trees because when I think about today's subject, it is the first thing I think about is the trees. I want you to take a walk with me down a red dirt road. And if you have ever seen the movie Forest Gump, you know, not a movie we usually talk about on Black History Boot Camp, but if you've ever seen the movie Forrest Gump, when Forrest Gump was running and he had braces on his leg as a child and then he decided to run when he first started running and the braces got off when he was running and he was running down a, a, a dirt road and it had these big giant live oak trees with Spanish moss um, kind of blowing in the wind. That exact road is the exact location of where we're talking about from that movie. It was filmed on St. Helena Island, that scene in Forrest Gump. And did you know that, Vanessa? I literally did not know that, no. Yes, that exact road. These cute kids are playing with me. Hey, kiddos. 
sorry. I can't act like I don't see them. They got on their little school uniforms and they're literally kicking around a rock. It's that exact road. So um, I just want you to picture like his childhood home and Forrest Gump. If you saw the movie, if you didn't see the movie, picture the biggest oak trees you have ever seen. And they are planted on the most beautiful island you could imagine. Off the, and it is a coastal island where half of it is freshwater, half of it is seawater, saltwater. It is marshland somewhere. If you've ever seen the movie Daughters of the Dust, this is the location. The South Carolina Sea Islands is what we're talking about. If you've ever been to Savannah, Georgia, that is the general area. If you've ever been to Charleston, South Carolina, it's a bit south of that ever been to Jackson, Mississippi, it's a bit north of that. So it's all in that area. There are, there's a coastal barrier of islands there, and they are called the Sea Islands of America. If you've never been there, I highly rec- recommend a family vacation on the Sea Islands. It's gorgeous, 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 and there is Black culture there. There is so much Black culture, whether it is America Beach, American Beach that we talked about in the episode mm-hmm. that led so brilliantly or if it is what we are talking about now, right off the coast of Beaufort, South Carolina, a little island called St. Helena Island. Oh, I have been there so many times. It is my dream to live there. I was in contract to buy a house there, y'all, when I moved to Ghana. It's a true story. I had like one more signature. The little house with like a, the Red Roof Barn Lady. She had a house, if you guys are from there. Uh, shout out to our truckers in South Carolina and Beaufort and yeah. in St. Helena. The lady who owns the art gallery at Red Barn, she was selling her house and I was going to buy that house. But I came here instead to God be the glory. All those school kids are coming home. So if you hear kids <laughs> acting kiddish, acting teenagery, that's who they are, all holding hands and stuff. They're going to get in trouble. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> good yeah. Anyway, so that is the location of today's story. So I just want you to, wherever you are walking, if you can feel the sun, just close your eyes for a second and feel the sun dance on your eyelids. Imagine it's dappled sun through the leaves of trees. Imagine you open your eyes and you might see seabirds because we are on the coast of South Carolina. Now, This coastal island may be different from where you are from in that as you are walking, you may hear languages that you don't quite understand, languages that sound deeply familiar to your heart and very foreign to your ear. And that language would be called the Gullah language. It is a Creole language that is a mix between African. It actually is a mix between Native American uh, languages the Spanish first owned that island or colonized that island and stole it from the Native Americans, then the French, and then the English. And Africans were there the whole time. And it's so beautiful that I actually hear people speaking tree in the background. So those just that you hear from Ghana, imagine that on the South Carolina seashore, where because it was so isolated on these beautiful islands, the Africans who were stolen from their motherland were able to keep their mother tongue. And that mother tongue evolved and it evolved and it evolved over years and mixed in with some of the other languages around. And it sounds very close to maybe a Jamaican Patois or a Bahamian Creole or um, a Sierra Leonean Creole. It is gorgeous. It is a beautiful mix of languages and is unique to that particular region of the United States and the world, y'all. 
So our ancestors came there, they set up shops there, and they created and maintained a culture and a language. Now, some people say that the Gullah people who live on the south uh, or the seashore or the uh, sea islands of South Carolina, North Carolina, even Florida, all came from a similar part of West Africa because it was so hard to farm there and they could only farm in crops because it was marshland. It would wash over with seawater and freshwater at different times of the year. So you had to come from a particular coastal region in Africa to be able to farm the land there. So once they found people who, who were masterful at farming the land there, they went back to those same regions. And so some people say that the reason why the Gullah community is so strong now is because like Africatown, they came from either the same or similar regions in Africa. So they came unbroken with their culture intact. It wasn't like they were stolen from different parts like many of us were. That's important because they farmed rice. Like if you think about water farming, like where the, where the water rises really high, they, really high, they um, did all kinds of seagrasses. So they have these beautiful like sweet seagrass baskets that are very indicative of the culture there to go get a, a sweet grass basket in the Gullah Sea Islands. They also farmed and harvested. Have you heard of that book that came out like last year called Braiding Seagrass? It's like a book I think about no. like, maybe Hill. Yeah, and somebody even no, sent but a copy I think you to told the, me about to the it. office. I think the yeah, because yeah, somebody sent a copy to the office. The author did, and then I just I haven't read it, but then I just saw it pop up again, and I was like, maybe that's a sign. And then now you're talking about the sweet grass. Yeah. Oh, please read it. Please read it. Yeah. yeah. Shout out um, to both Takia on the national staff and Christina on the national staff who are from the Gullah community, who live in the Gullah community, whose families for generations are Gullah and have been protecting the land. Shout out to you for all that you bring to this movement, notwithstanding the beautiful spirit that you bring to our team of confidence and relaxation and like a real solidness in your identity. And then the generations of land ownership and farming that both of your families have brought. And then the good recipes of whatever that cornbread was you made to Kia and the beautiful like tomatoes and okra and stuff you'd be growing, Christina, we are watching you. We are inspired by you. In many ways, the Gullah people are the purest form of our original culture. And so everyone should visit. Everyone should bring their tourism dollars there. Everyone should buy Gullah cookbooks. Everyone should watch Gullah documentaries so that we know it's G-U-L-L-A-H if you've never heard of it. And sometimes Gullah people refer to themselves. And sometimes people think it's pejorative, call themselves Geechee people. And some people think it's because I guess there is a river called the Ogeechee, the Ogeechee River there. And so people who were either saltwater or freshwater Geechee, depending on what part of the island you lived on. So I just want- Can I recommend a cookbook, Morgan? The Gullah Gullah Geechee Home Cooking Cookbook. It's by, it's actually Takia's aunt, I think, but her name is Emily Maget. I hope I'm saying, is that how you say Takia's last name, Maget? But it's called the Gola Gichi Home Cooking Cookbook. Gola Gichi. And mm-hmm. it's been all yeah. over. Yeah, you could get it even in the African American History Museum. They're selling it. But I got it and uh-huh. uh, already made a recipe from it. And it's so good. And what I love about it is she talks to, like about the traditions of the community a lot. And also she acknowledges like it ain't no measuring. Like it's soul. Just you got to get in your soul. You got to understand. <laughs> right? So, yes. <laughs> Oh, shout out. Yeah. Listen, it's a very good is famous. 
Takia's family famous. Yeah. And Christina's family's famous. Christina's family, her great great don't count me on the great grandfather, was given their family farmland from Harriet Beecher Stowe. And Harriet Beecher Stowe was the most famous author who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin back in the day. So I mean, I'm saying these are legacy families that work for the Girl Trek community. And if you are not a part of Girl Trek Gardeners, it's a Facebook page led by Christina. I really, really recommend that you join Girl Trek Gardeners. Girl Trek Gardeners was started by masterful gardeners in the Girl Trek community across the country who came together and decided that we are going to grow almost like the victory gardens of World War One, I, I think, or World War II, where all of Americans stopped everything and, grow, and grew something in their backyard. These sisters came together. These Girl Trek members came together and said, we are going to do that in Girl Trek, and we are going to use every piece of green space we have in our apartments, on our balconies, on our, our patios, in the potted plants to grow food for ourselves and our family. We're going to reconnect with dirt and with earth. So if you are interested in learning more, they put beautiful content on that page. Go to Girl Trek Gardeners on Facebook and just join the community. There's over a thousand gardeners, brand new gardeners like me. I was going to say me and my sister, but she's been a part of Girl Trek Gardeners for like four years. And when I tell you she done came to church talking about, I have some green juice this morning. I have my own cucumbers and I have my own arugula. And I'm like, oh, I was like, what? And why didn't you bring me none? You know, it's just like ridiculous. You know, you give some people some skills. I'm saying they act like they don't remember you. That's what I'm saying. So thank you, Christina, for teaching my sister how to take better care of herself and her family, the people I love closest in my life. So I really appreciate that. So let's get on to the story, y'all. That Morgan, I have to tell hold up, before yes. we, I have to tell this yes. one now 90-second story that's related because I just got a text from Angie Orr saying, well, that's her grandfather, her great-grandfather. And I don't know if you know this, but our community is so dope and so strong that one of our trekkers in D.C., whose name is Angie, was at the Stressville test like three years ago on a bus. And on that bus learned that Christina was like her cousin. And that... that what? And so, yes. Angie Orr and Christina are cousins? Yes. Yes, Morgan. Like, oh, that's beautiful. Blah, 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 related or something. And so she just texted and she was just like, that's my great grandfather. And like, I think it was like one of those stories where somebody's like, you know, so-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so. And she's like, I know Mrs. So-and-so. That's and then most of so-and-so. And now they're related. And so, yeah, like the Girl Trek community oh, is bringing together families. We are family. bringing together neighborhoods. We are bringing together communities. It is so beautiful to see. I know several families, Morgan who are walking with Girl Trek all over the country but and came at it at different like different stages. But then now it's like, oh yeah, my cousin does it here or my auntie does it there. And like it's such a good part of the community. That is beautiful. Well shout out to Angie Orr who's part of the legendary Gullah community as well. Even if it's one or two generations removed. So many people I know are actually Gullah who are just like one or two generations removed. Sorry, I was hesitating. I literally went back into school teacher mode. These little kids are throwing like rocks. I was about to say, excuse me. Excuse me, please. Excuse me. <laughs> I was about to go over there. I, I had my teacher look on and everything. They was about no. to get in trouble, these kids. They was about to get in trouble. Now, listen, I'm glad you were telling the good Angie story because I was captivated. But I heard they were about to get in trouble. They were about to get in trouble. Because do not do that. I, when I was on the plane coming home, 
this woman was trying to put her luggage up in the cabin and there was like a 19 year old guy behind her and he didn't help her and she was struggling. And an older gentleman who was probably like 65, maybe even 70, he got up from his seat, he unbuckled his seatbelt. He did a long pause and sigh. He got up from his seat. He helped the lady put her thing up. And then he went to school this 19 year old. He said, good, good. He said, you never let a woman do this by herself and you're standing right there. Next time you always help. You hear me? You always help. And he said, yes, sir. And then he sat back down. And I was like, teach the young boys. <laughs> teach them. Teach them. Conversely, yeah. these fine guys, they were like my age, like 40. They was laughing. already had started drinking on the plane. They was having them a good time. And this girl came and she couldn't fit her bag. And so she just gave the guy, she was like, can you put it up there? And he was like, yeah, sure. And then she turned around and walked off. And he was like, you ain't even going to wait for me to teach this shit. And she was like, innocent. And nope. then she just kept walking. She got, yeah, she got expectations. <laughs> She got expectations. She's like, the universe is going to meet my expectations. I ain't hesitating to turn around and look. I tell you, I've not carried a bag in four years since I moved here. It is a nice thing. But um, all right, let's go ahead and move into the story. Set where Angie or his great grandfather, where Takia, where Christina, where all of our sisters from this beautiful, beautiful coastal part of America live and breathe and and didn't dig their fingers in the dirt. This is St. Helena Island. Well, one of the things you should know is in the year 1961, as soon as the Civil War started, the Union Army marched down. Actually, I'm pretty sure the, the um, yes, the 54th Regiment from Massachusetts, if you've ever seen the, the movie Glory, came down through this part. And Fort Sumner was the first battle when they were dying on the beach. So this is the area that we're talking about. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that this is where the 54th Regiment fought. I have to go back and check my notes. I'll tell y'all tomorrow, but I'm pretty sure. And But what I know for sure is that Fort Sumner was the, a major victory in the beginning for the Union Army in the Civil War. And it was early in the Civil War, six, uh, 1861. So, you know, Civil War is 1861 to 1865. If you don't remember no dates in history, remember that because so much happened before and after the Civil War that impacted Black people that I want that that to be a set of dates that's in your mind, 1861 to 1865. So 1861, the very beginning of the war, South Carolina was in the heat of battle and the, and the Union won, okay? So then they um, took over Port Royal. They took over Port Royal. You were just down there, right, Vanessa? Mm-hmm, I was. Weren't you and your man down, just down there? And yeah. But Vanessa... Harriet Tubman was down there in 1861, but you have to, you have to realize that, that 54th Regiment was the first colored regiment that could fight. So 1861, that was a big deal that they were fighting and black people were not allowed to integrate military service until after that, right? They were the, they were the trailblazers. And so Harriet Tubman was there and I know that she played an important role in Fort Royal. In history books, it says that she was like a nurse and a cook and a clean cleaner. But what happened is right after that is when the Combahanchi River raid happened, 1862, right after that. So, so I she was down she was there getting intel. She was figuring yes. it all out. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. She was already a spy. And if you don't remember, teach this to your daughters. Harriet Tubman was the first woman in all of American history, black or white, to lead a military raid. 
And she did it right here off the coast of this island. So this is a powerful place in history, y'all. Harriet Tubman's there. The 54th Regiment is probably there. The Union has just won. And St. Helena was won over by the Union and they kicked all of the plantation owners out. Well, right before that, in 1855, one of the plantation owners had built a new church because the Civil War was coming and I think he was trying to give it all all of France. Hold on, let me let these kids go by. Because they ain't going to worry me today. They ain't going to worry me today. They ain't going to worry me today. We live, y'all. We walking in our neighborhood. (laughs) They ain't going to worry me today. But um, they ain't going to worry me today. Make you too. Make you too. So this is the setting that we're in, Vanessa. And so they have built this church in 1855, and that church still stands today, okay? And then they got kicked off of their plantation, and then it's just all of our ancestors are free, Vanessa. So they start divvying out land to people and doing all sorts of things. But the first thing they do in 1862 was build a school for freed children. And it was the first school in the American South because it was the first place liberated for black children. And it was called the Penn School, P-E-N-N. And it was named after William Penn, who is the same man that Pennsylvania is named after. And he was a Quaker. You know, there's a lot of Quakers in Pennsylvania. And in fact, two women who were Quakers started to raise the money for the school and underwrote the cost of the school. So shout out to the Quakers who throughout history helped Harriet Tubman, throughout history helped the abolitionist movement. I'm grateful for good allies. And we spent some time with some really good allies this weekend. And if you're listening to this, I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful. Maybe your ancestors was Quaker. (laughs) So ignorant. So ignorant, but shout out to the Quakers. So... The school was established in 1862 by a woman named Laura Matilda Town. She was from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which we are going to talk about later in the season of Black History Boot Camp, Pittsburgh. It's going to be good, y'all. That episode is going to be good. But they smartly appointed a Black woman to be the first school leader. So they didn't try to be the first school leader. They appointed a free Black woman to be the first school leader. And they just casually mentioned her name, Vanessa, as Charlotte Louise Fortin. And I was like, Charlotte Fortin? I was like, Fortin sounds like a famous name of some sort. And I was like, let me look her up. But you know, Wikipedia did her wrong. They didn't even give her no link or nothing. It wasn't even blue with no underline or nothing. I was like, let me just see if I Google Charlotte Fortin who this woman was that said, in the middle of the Civil War, Vanessa, I am going to lead the first school for black children in all of the United States American South history. Like, who is this right. woman who said right. that this is my calling in life? She is a hero. And I wanted to know more about her. Well, Vanessa, when I Googled her, they was like, you mean... Let me see. Let me pull up my notes. Hold on. I can't be remembering like you. They was like, you mean Charlotte Louise Bridges Fortin Grimke? And I was like, Grimke? Grimke is definitely a famous name in black history. And then I was wrong. I remember there was a Grimke sister who was white. And the Grimke sisters are famous in America because they're widely considered at least at, among, if not the, the first feminist in history. 
the Grimke sisters. And they were with like Susan B. Anthony and them up at all them like, you know, marches and suffragist movements and, you know, up in Niagara, not Niagara, Seneca Falls and all that kind of stuff. So I knew from my own cursory study of American history, the Grimke sisters, I remember their names. And that's, I was like, impressive. that's impressive. That's impressive. It's I impressive know. That I know, Vanessa. It is. And it's, a, it's yeah. an unusual name. So I was like, how is this black woman last name Grimke? Girl, I start digging, okay? Oh, no. Well, first of all, tell me, what don't I tell me the out. feminist no. family owned the black woman. Listen, don't tell me this part. Vanessa, you might have to hear this part. You might need to lean in <laughs> for this part. Her husband was a famous pastor. And let me see, I got his name. Don't, mm-hmm. He was a famous na- pastor named Francis Grimke. And so that's where she got the Grimke name by marriage. Turns out her family would have been a free black family in Philadelphia for generations, Vanessa. This woman was free in her mind, free in her body, free in her family, free in her philosophy. And she came to teach these kids at the Penn School. Her father was a sale maker. You know, I mean, it was like surreal stuff. But then I dug a little bit too deep in her family. <laughs> and it turns out that on her mama's side, her grandfather was one of the founders of the Constitution, was one of the signers of the Constitution, and he owned slaves. So her her mother was biracial, but her father okay. was a black man. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But she, what I'm saying is she's from a prominent family in Philadelphia. Her mom married this black man who was a, a, a powerful business owner. But then she married Francis Grimke. Now, Francis Grimke was the son of a plantation owner. And the plantation owner owned the woman who he was in a relationship with. They called him her, they called her his domestic partner, but he owned her. He impregnated her with two boys and one of them was Francis. That plantation Mm -hmm. owner had sisters and they were the Grimke sisters. So when the Grimke sisters clutched their pearls and said, what do you mean our brother? Had in, has African-American children, has, has enslaved children. <laughs> they took it upon themselves to educate Francis Grimke, who was half black, half white, and take him under their wings as the good feminists that they are. When their brother done did what he did to that woman that he owned, they took this young child, Francis, under their wing. They educated him, and he became very, very important in the, in the abolitionist movement. And he married Charlotte, and Charlotte was the principal and the, and the um, first teacher of the Penn School. So I thought that was fascinating. Um, he was also a preacher of like 15th Street Baptist Church or something in D.C. Let me see if I can find it so you can walk over there. You might go walk there now. Let me see. So they uh, yeah. lived in Georgetown for a little bit. American Presbyterian in D.C. Oh, here's what's so... Oh, 15th Street Presbyterian Church. This, Go by there and see if you can. I feel like this is crazy because isn't that the church I was just walking by the other day? I was on 15th Street. I, remember and I told you that the pastor came from... That's it. Nigeria. Okay. Yeah, I feel like that Maybe. was... I feel Maybe like that's that might be him. Yeah, it's on the corner and it's like got a little slope roof. Okay, so first of all, here's what's even more amazing about this story. You was talking yesterday about, what's his name? Lonzo? Alonzo? 
Oh, yes, Alonzo Herndon. You were talking about Alonzo Herndon, and you said he went to Niagara Fault, to the Niagara meeting to start the NAACP. Guess who else was there, Vanessa? Francis Grimke was there. This woman's husband was there. It's just such a beautiful... Beautiful. And so now you see the kind of people who started the NAACP. Alonzo yeah. was there, who started his barbershop, got burned down in the riots, then yeah. started the insurance company. W.E.B. Du Bois was there, who y'all know about. And this man, Francis Grimke, whose aunties are literally the poster children of the feminist movement, whose father was a plantation owner, who, became, who got educated out of the guilt of his aunts, and then who became a prominent abolitionist and preacher and who married the first educator and principal, this bad woman from this bad, beautiful family whose grandfather was one of the signers of the Constitution, started the first black school, the Penn School. What I'm saying is black people was doing some stuff in some circumstances, y'all. In <laughs> some circumstances, they were still doing some stuff. And what I would like to mention here is that sometimes we were able to do something because we were in proximity to powerful whiteness. I just dropped that on you right there. I'm just saying, and I ain't saying nothing except for it's not a coincidence that all these light-skinned people was leading at the time. That is not a coincidence. <laughs> it is it is. is it? Don't laugh at me, Vanessa. I'm not trying to be colorism. I'm not trying to be none of this stuff. So No, I'm, not I'm laughing at the also. game. I'm just laughing at how the game be, right? I'm just saying, like, it's just deep. It's just deep. It's just deep. It's so deep, y'all. It's so deep. So 1862, the Penn School was started. It was a 42-acre, it still is, a 42-acre campus, Vanessa, that has classrooms and buildings and housing and, and sea, uh, seafront, beachfront, big trees, gorgeous. Go look at the, go type in Penn School, St. Helena Island and see the pictures. They have all these beautiful vintage pictures of students learning and teachers teaching and people walking outside with those 1885 dresses on. I mean, just looking gorgeous. Black people just looking gorgeous, y'all. Just looking gorgeous. Again, think daughters of the dust, just looking gorgeous. So that was the Penn School. And one thing I found interesting about it, I just want you all to know the name of the Penn School, know where it, where it is. There's two things I want to share before we close out or even open up for call or for any callers who have anything to say, particularly if you are from South Carolina or you have been there and you have something to correct the record, add to the record or celebrate in black history, raise your hand by star nine and then we will um, unmute your phone or teach you how to unmute it. So Vanessa, two things I want to say. First off, after reconstruction, the school was, was not funded anymore. So the, the Quakers came in, brought some initial funding. Then the Reconstruction. Remember, we talked about the Freedmen's Bureau. That was a good episode. Yeah, the Freedmen's Bureau. Yeah. So the Freedmen's Bureau and the, and, and the federal government has started funding schools for um, black children, and teachers were starting to get employed. Black teachers were starting to get employed. It was a whole thing until the terror of the South, and the United States had to pull to get pull the racist people back into the union and they had to stop the Freedmen's Bureau and stop all these this social net and social services for black people. So they pulled federal funding from schools like the Penn Center or the Penn School. So what happened is they, they started to adopt the Tuskegee model 
ding, 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 Booker T. Washington's model of industrial education. And they decided to teach their their children things like masonry, like ironworks, like bricklaying, but also architecture. Like we talked about yesterday, we need to learn these hard skills of design and of building. And they started, they adopted the Hampton Tuskegee model, which Booker T. Washington went to Hampton and then he went down to Tuskegee and continued to build on this model of education, which was much more pragmatic and build ourselves up and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? And that is fascinating given that the first teacher was a part of the Niagara movement, which was W.B. Du Bois. And you know, history always pits those two. Are we going to be a school that teaches intellectualism and philosophy and art? Or are we going to be a school that teaches the hard skills of building community from the ground up? And, And history has pitted those two men against each other. But what we know for sure is that we need both. What we know for sure is that we don't just need the talented 10th who have proximity to white power, whether you're W.E.B. Du Bois who went to Harvard or whether you are the sister here, Charlotte, who is married to the Grimsky, Grimke family, your proximity to whiteness will not save you. And so the talented 10th is not enough. Although we want our kids to be hyper intellectual, we want them to be have access to integrated best schools in the world. But we also understand that there is a role for Booker T. Washington. Hold on. Speaking of Booker T. <laughs> Somebody. <laughs> There's also a role for Booker T. So that is one thing I found interesting that they adopted that uh, the Hampton Tuskegee model of education for a long time. So a lot of the pictures you will see look very industrial, like the kids are doing industrial arts. And then the other thing that I thought was fabulous is the school almost went under a couple of times. Um, financially. But in the 1960s, um, again, some allies bought the school, Vanessa, and they decided that because the school was so remote um, and so off the grid, because you kind of got to go an hour and a half or so outside of Savannah Uh to get there, so remote and so off the grid, that they would create a safe haven there at the Penn School for people who were then considered radical revolutionaries, we now call them civil rights leaders, okay? So in the 60s, the 50s and 60s, civil rights leaders like Andrew Young, like all these different people whose names we know now, started going to the Penn School. You know who went to the Penn School? Septima Clark, Vanessa, Ella Mm. Baker, like Diane Nash, who we just spoke to on our podcast, Still Living Legend of the Civil Rights Movement. She was one of the young students in SNCC who went to the Penn School, and she totally disagreed with what they were planning there on the island of St. Helena. And you know, their most famous resident of the Penn School was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who you just talked about yesterday. I didn't know he was there. He went there for five years straight, Vanessa. And in fact, he wrote his I Have a Dream speech there at the Penn School and delivered it at that 1855 church. Yes, he practiced his I Have a Dream speech there. And they were really there debating because they could be safe there because none of the people knew they was there. I mean, this is deep in Gullah, Gullah land, right? They felt more safe there. And this is kind of the old guard of the, um, of the civil rights movement. People like Martin Luther King and the Southern Leadership Council were trying uh-huh. to figure out anti-poverty laws and whether or not they were going to um, work on job creation. You remember the March on Washington was for jobs. Um, yeah. And they were 
kind of entrepreneurial where they tried to get into the establishment, the federal government, get contracts. And then you had the young people who were like, no, like Diane Nash was like, no, we are going to boycott everything and we are going to protest everything. And that was the SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And these two powerful organizations were meeting and debating their strategy. And one of the things they were debating is whether or not they would move the headquarters of the civil rights movement from Alabama and Mississippi to Chicago. And they had started buying land. The Southern Leadership Council had started buying land in Chicago because they wanted to fight poverty. And you remember Dr. King, actually, one of the things they started doing because he came there five years in a row, they started building him his own cabin to write in the woods. And it's called the Martin Luther King cabin Mm. and it's still there. He never got to come back because when he left the Penn Center that time, he delivered, I have a dream speech. He went to Tennessee to help sanitation workers because he started talking about Vietnam and poverty. And he started, he started deliver, practicing delivering speeches to the Gullah community about Vietnam and gross poverty in America. And those are two things that were much more radical than the kind of agenda he had with integration. And soon after, he went and started to help unionize and help support um, the sanitation workers in Memphis. And it was in Memphis at the Lorraine Hotel that he was murdered. He was assassinated. And then the entire country went just red with sorrow and pain and rage for the loss of this young life. I think Martin Luther King was 34 years old when he was killed. 34, yeah. Yeah. And so I just want you to get a sense of this sacred ground, which was the first black school in the South, then became uh, an extension of Booker T. Washington's work, and then became ground zero for civil rights organizing and strategy and safety. It's just so beautiful, Vanessa. And I would like to say that we have a small part in this legacy too, because our first ever class of city captains in Girl Trek all met there on St. Helena yeah. Island. We went to a festival there. We saw the horses <laughs> and the guys, the rodeo guys, the guy Look, somebody told me at that festival, beach. y'all. That's all y'all need to know. Somebody <laughs> told me he could cook some food fish, he gonna rub your feet at night, and he goes, that's what those men, that, that's what was communicated to me. Like, that's, that's the vibe yes. I got. Not to, you know, I just feel like a place where some homegrown men are being raised, okay? Yes, yes, yes. And as importantly as the homegrown men being raised, I'll rub your feet. Girl Treks organizers united on the beach. We made a pledge that we would be here today, a million black women strong. And I'm so grateful for those original Girl Trekkers, we call them OGs, who met on that beach, right there on that yes. sacred land, in the same footprints of Diane Nash and Ella Baker and Septima Clark and all of the legendary civil rights leaders who we know a whole generation later and said that we would create a new kind of movement, one where black women get to live and thrive and our kids get to have joy and justice. And so that is Girl Trek. Ooh, I, ooh y'all. Ooh, y'all. <laughs> so I'm so grateful for today's episode. Do we have callers or somebody texting Vanessa, you're saying? We can, yeah, before we bring on the callers, two things about what you just said. One, one of our street reporters gave a correction that Martin Luther King was 39 when he passed away. So thank you for that. Great, and great. Second, thank you. Yeah. And then the second thing is just as a reminder, Girl Trek, the organizer training that we held there, our very first one in South Carolina, 
was on the night Barack Obama. It started on the night Barack Obama got elected for his second term in office. Do you remember that? It was just me and you. Wow. And we were waiting. Yes. Yeah. And we were waiting for them to arrive in the morning. And we had got the house all prepared and everything. And then we had went to eat at this restaurant and like the election results were coming online and it was the night. And I just always remember that because I think it's, it, I feel like it meant something that he was getting a lot well, here's what's so powerful about women. that. Here's what's so powerful about that. First of all, I voted for Barack Obama on the Underground Railroad when I was first going to Harriet Tubman's house to see where it was. I wanted to go on the Eastern Shore. I wanted to go to Harriet Tubman's house and I, and I voted and did an absentee. I dropped my absentee ballot on the Underground Railroad. Second, Barack Obama in office is the one who, the Penn Center became a national historic site in 74, but Barack Obama gave it funding by making it a post-reconstruction site of significance. Y'all know how this legislation policy and funding and budgets be working. You can give us a little placard, but we want the same money that them reenactment people got. We want the same money that the reenactment <laughs> yes. people got. You know what I'm saying? And I'm just saying, and it was Barack Obama who really sealed it and, and funded the Penn Center to be able to preserve all of the beautiful architecture and, and it made it a site of significance. So shout out to just powerful leaders doing powerful things, including the original Girl Trekkers. Is there anybody on the phone who would like to further correct the record, add to the story, or just celebrate with us as we go out? Vanessa, my closing question to you or to any callers is that if you were designing a school for the kids you love most right now, what are the hallmarks of the school? What would your school be like? Oh. This is a great question because I was just talking about this with Terry, who was one of the organizers of the event that I went to in Kansas City. And Terry is one of those Black women, Morgan, who volunteers for everything and is really the heartbeat of a community. And she just retired, but she was like, I retired. And then I started doing some research on the education numbers. And she was like, because education in our city is really bad. And this woman has pulled all the reports on reading, on literacy, on all this stuff. And I was telling her that we should do some sort of like living room experience where you could go into like people's living room in the neighborhood and somebody would read to the children. And I, any school that I had would include a significant story time. And I don't mean like, let's read and then we have to like recite it back. I just mean like where you can just dream and somebody can just read to you and you can just enjoy and experience it. Like I really believe in that type of like learning environment. And so I would start with some sort of story time or storytelling and reading as like a fundamental part of my experience. And I'd probably have that experience outdoors because there's something about like the fresh air and being outside. Um, I always think about that when I was growing up as like a really good part of my educational experience growing up in Seattle is that there was a lot of outside time and a lot of like story time and reading time. I love that. Oh, I love that. I would send my kids to your school, Vanessa. And I ask that because schools are the one institution that are still recognizable today as the exact same format as what they were doing during the Penn School. And that feels like a travesty. Everything else, farming has changed, technology, communication has changed, transportation has changed, we're not riding horses anymore. 
but schools have stayed the same. And lots of school reformers believe that it's because schools are designed to keep the status quo or to keep kids and keep society from being turned upside down. So you don't want kids to be too smart or too free thinking. But I tell you, I have gone, I've had the opportunity to go to the schools where the president of the United States send their school, their kids, and they are exactly how you describe. I'm talking about the kids laying on pillows. They listening to like philosophy. Mm-hmm. The doors is open. It's just, it, it is a different feeling in those schools and the schools I taught in where our kids are going through metal detectors and they're sitting in straight lines and they're told not to be, not to speak, not to talk unless they're talk, they're spoken to. It is a different feeling. If I had a school, I would put them on a bus. And that will be the school. I'll be like, all right, and we're coming to Washington, D.C. And we were just experiencing. Exactly. I used to be so happy with my kids. Like my kids would go like for the holidays to Puerto Rico and not come back for three weeks. I would be so happy. I would just be like, just yeah. stay. Just stay and learn, y'all. So callers, let's hear the first caller in. Hello? Hello. Oh. What's your name? Where are you from? Hi, my name's Kim Aline. I'm from Boston. Hey, Kim from Boston. What you got to say? Well, so we, I just want to make sure I'm responding to the right question about this, the education for the young people, what we'd want to see. Oh, Kim, there ain't no right question in Black History Boot Camp, girl. We just walking and talking. What you got to say? Everything is right. Well, oh gosh. Well, I was so excited to hear about the, the, today's presentation. I have a young son who's 11, and I feel like when we're, I'm, I'm always advocating and always trying to figure out what is he learning? What he's supposed to be learning? Is he doing what he's supposed to be doing? So I guess I would love to see a school system where we're not having to try to like double get, you know guess that we're really on the same page with our teachers. So maybe they're from the communities we are from, and they're really in partnership. And being a mom of a boy, I'd love to see movement and that be part of the education. So if your child is interested in music, that's they're learning with the they're learning with the skills that they are endowed with. So if that's through music and movement and dance and or listening to stories in the way that you said that, that that's what our education shared. So thank you for the opportunity to weigh in. This is a beautiful conversation, very uplifting. Thank you. Oh, I love that, Kim. And I want to actually give a shout out to DC Public Schools Chancellor, and her name is Kaya Henderson, Chancellor Henderson. And Kaya Henderson, first of all, is a girl trucker, y'all, and listens to Black History Bootcamp and walks with us. So shout out if you're listening right now, um, Kaya. And Kaya, after she left for being the chancellor, first of all, she was such a powerful leader in D.C., and it's a hard, hard job, y'all. She started something called Reconstruction, which is an education platform that was designed to meet those exact needs that you just said, where it's designed to include parents in the curriculum and to augment public education with things like movement and music and things that, w- that are designed for children who, are, who want an African-centered and culturally rich experience. So I don't know the website. I don't know. I wasn't prepared for the commercial, but I'm just saying y'all Google it. Reconstruction Kaya. I bet there's an app or there's a website or something like that. If you are a parent, I highly recommend that you look into these kinds of services that these brilliant education reform leaders are starting to offer to our community. So thank you for that. And for that reminder that that is out there for us. Is there another caller? We're bringing in the next caller. One of our organizers who was there in South Carolina with us, Katrina, who goes by Zola now, she just texted just to say how it was still such a pivotal experience for her. I love you so much, Zola, and we are just 
this community is like, we're like the mob. Y'all can never get out. Okay. Once you are in girl trust, we ain't letting you out. I just have to make this clear to people. We don't care if we ain't heard from you for three years. We don't care if you ain't walked in five years. That's the point. Circle, hey. go, circle the block and keep circling the block and keep picking up our peoples and uh, keep building this movement. I love, love, love this community. Oh, Sola, I love you, girl. I ain't talked to you since your name was Katrina, and I'm so proud of you for making all, all the changes in your life, and I'm so yes. proud of all the work and how you show up, and I remember you being there. I have so many pictures of you. Oh, that's so great. All right, Carl, are you there? Unmute. Hello, I'm here. Hello there. Hi. I'm here from Yonkers, New York. This is Tamara Somerville. How are you? Hi, Kramara, is that it? Tamara with a T. Oh, Tamara from Yonkers. Like How you doing, like Tamara from Yonkers? Tamara. I am yeah, so I excited you, to be on this call. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, what you, what you want to add? So I am a homeschooling mom, and when you said the name for it, my ears perked up because there was a book that we had read a while ago of James Fortin. You mentioned that he was a sailmaker, which is which is true, um, but he was also um, instrumental in the American Revolution where he had gotten captured on a ship. And if I remember correctly, um, the captain had gotten, it was a British ship, and the captain had gotten shot. He put on the captain's hat and sailed back into American territory. Hey, I knew that name was Yes. <laughs> Girl, thank you. I knew that name sounded familiar. I was like, this ain't no regular teacher. Let me just, uh, yes, tell the people yes, the I story. Know. That is her grandfather, yes. Oh, that was her grandfather. Y'all, this is royalty. This yes. is royalty. Oh, my goodness. I that hope is, they are telling the story of this first teacher. Yes. yes. Oh, I'm so glad you called it's in. So James Horton. Yeah, so exciting. So that is so hear. exciting. And, you know, as, as a homeschooling family, you were talking about like what we can add. Black families are the biggest growing part of the homeschool movement. So we are taking back um, our right to educate our children, um, taking back our right to make sure that they know our own history. And so, yeah, I know we, could, we can work within the system, but sometimes we've got to just lose the system altogether and, and do it on our own. And so I'm, I'm grateful. I for love that. I love that. I'm grateful for it. It is a brave move to be a part of the homeschooling movement. And often it works out so much better for some of our children. I know that three of my nephews are homeschooled and they'd be playing the guitar and doing karate in the backyard. And I'm like, what is happening? (laughs) So I'm grateful. Yes. Yes. Consider that y'all out there, just consider it for yourselves. If you have the capacity and I would say if you have the community to be able to do it, because I, it, I, I can imagine it would be very difficult to be an island of one um, homeschooling yeah. if you have the community or can build the community or can move to the community. Uh, is there one yeah. resource that people want to learn about homeschooling that they should check out or look into? Um, definitely. You can check out HSLDA. Um, is the, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. They can get you in contact with a number of homeschooling communities. I run a Facebook page in Westchester um, with 1,600 families in Westchester, New York. And, wow. Um, uh, we run a weekly program, Classical Conversations, that's all over the country. So, 
And our, we have one of the most. You better leave Tamara of Yonkers. You better <laughs> leave the families, girl. Listen, I'll call you Starlet Fortin. You better leave. That's excellent. Oh, I'm so proud of you. That's excellent. That's Y'all better do this. Y'all better do this. Thank you so much for calling yes. in. Thank you for your work that you do. Oh, Vanessa, that just excited my soul. I knew that name sounded familiar. She knows who I love when people call in. We should always open up the lines. That's so good. I didn't have time to dig no deeper. <laughs> I, was just, I was shook by them grippy. I was like, no, they did not. Yes, that's it, excellent. Thank you all for calling in. I learned so much with this story today, and I learned so much from the callers. Y'all, I'm grateful to be a part of this. I wanted to end on a high note. I just want you to know that you can do anything, that we have come so far, that there are so many people who are in our corner who've always been in our corner, that we have institutions and legacy. And I wanted to end with this little Marvin Gaye, Tammy Terrell. Let's go. Ain't no mountain high enough, y'all. Listen, baby, ain't no mountain high, ain't no valley low, ain't no river wide. 